Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn on a beautiful, sunny day in Wiltshire. The birds are singing, the butterflies are fluttering, the flowers are coming out, and it's the start of the cricket season. Hello from me and Richard Heller in a similarly lustrous spring day in London South East. This week we have one of our favourite people, friend of both of ours, given us enormous help in the past over a number of things. Richard, perhaps you could introduce Stephen Lynch. I'm delighted to. Stephen is the international editor of um, Wisdom Cricketer's Almanac, particularly contributes to Wisdom some of our favourite sections, particularly the obituary section of uh, lives of cricketers who passed away, and cricket supporters, uh, many great stories in there, which he always writes about beautifully. So it's a great honour and pleasure to welcome Stephen Lynch to the podcast. Good morning. Thank you for that. That's, uh, I hope I can live up to that introduction. You'll have no difficulty because I have to say, Stephen, I think this year you've excelled even yourself. Uh, in the quality of these essays you've written about the those the cricketers who've passed away or died this year, you know, uh, they're really detailed, humane studies, rich in research and learning, and also with lessons for life itself. So thank you very much on behalf of every reader of Wisdom. <laughs> thank you. It's uh, I, I should say it's a bit of a team effort. It's not just me. There are other people who contribute, and obviously we tap a lot of people's knowledge to to find them we, we've got a sort of small network of people that you that you contact i'm going to ask you about that later Stephen. but first of all i want to say i think this is a, an outstanding edition of wisdom because it says so much about matters outside of cricket it says such a great deal as about the global context of cricket it says a great deal about politics about economics uh, about social conditions even about psychological matters. Uh, it says a great deal about the environment. A new section on cricket on the environment, I think, is one of great importance. Future historians, I think, are going to find this edition a, um, a major source, not just for the history of cricket, but for all sorts of other things, especially, of course, coverage of the pandemic. Well, yes, obviously, this was a, a very odd year, a remarkable year. And at, at this, this time last year, when last year's book came out, we sat down and you had the prospect of there being no cricket at all. It looked as if you wouldn't get any cricket, certainly in England, in, in 2020. Luckily, eventually we did. But there was the prospect of trying to fill quite a lot of pages with not very much cricket. And you have to reflect that in the, the articles that go in. And I think that the team has achieved that very well. I think you, I, I think you have. There is, as you say, there's a surprising amount of cricket to go in. Uh, this year, but um, uh, as I say, there is a great, there's a great deal more. Historians will look at um, the history of the pandemic coverage as a history of the pandemic. They'll look at the coverage on Black Lives Matter in the history of, um, of racism and discrimination. As I say, they'll look into the um, cricket in the environment. They'll look into the two essays on schoolboy cricketers and um, university cricketers as a an exercise in the history of um, education and indeed the class system in Britain. So there's a, there is, this is a wisdom of, of great content and 
Individual sections, uh, including your own, are extraordinarily well written too. It'll be a source for um, cornices of literature too. I think we also do need to mention, though, Richard, the uh, the five cricketers of the year, because surprisingly, you know, given a year which was thin in cricket, there was very rich in outstanding individual performances, and you couldn't. Although I'll read, we guessed rather well, I think, about what was coming up. I mean, there were some phenomenal candidates. Stephen, tell us what were the five cricketers of the year? Uh, there were there were two England players, Zach Crawley and Dom Sibley, who did well. It was the one you didn't get? Was it Mohammad Rizwan? No, he was uh, he, he was oh. a pick both oh, he was by, a pick. Us, oh, by right. us and by uh, listeners. Yep. Oh, and uh, Jason Holder, the West Indies captain, who was sort of transcended the sport in a way, the way led the way for the Black Lives Matter and cricket interface, if that's the right word. And the last one. A slight sentimental choice, but he did very well. Was Darren Stevens? Oh, it wasn't. And it was I. It was my favourite choice. It was a, a lot <laughs> of forty-five-year-old Darren Stevens. Yeah. A lot of people's favourite. Yep. Old, oldest one since nineteen thirty something, and hasn't started this season too badly either. <laughs> Unfortunately, he can't get it two years running. But. A century and a no, you can't. But uh, a century and a fifty is a pretty good start. And um, yeah, very, very, very popular choice and a great inspiration for for. Older cricketers. <laughs> the one uh, we missed out collectively, us and our guest last week, Annie Chave, and our listeners' choice, one we missed out was actually Dominic Sibley. Oh, right. No, yes. no disrespect for him, but um, he, he was our one miss. I suppose he flies under the radar a bit because he doesn't feature in the white ball teams, but he, he batted an awfully long time during the summer. This is a tribute to the old-fashioned values of of test cricket as it's traditionally been played. I mean, rather a, a batsman in a way in the tradition of someone like Brian Bolas, who would never knowingly score a century before end of play. <laughs> That's right. He's, um, as the obituary says, he used to finish his speeches with, for all of you who ever saw me bat, I can only apologise. <laughs> <laughs> yes. He was a... Um, Brought up in the school, wasn't he? He started out with Yorkshire, of course, and he was brought up still in the school of, you know, no fours before May, before June, excuse me. Yeah. I love the, I mean, what, I just cannot praise too highly the obituary section. So, for instance, Brian Bolas, you've dug out the fact that he was advised fairly early on in his career, never to score too many runs uh, because <laughs> they'd expect, so he said, when you get to 1,500 runs in a season, don't get any more because otherwise they'll expect too much the following year. That piece of advice from an old pro. That's very... Um, uh, who was the old pro? Wasn't it Gordon Barker? Oh, I think it was Gordon Barker of Essex. And I love his advice when, when, when Bolas, who defected to Nottinghamshire from Yorkshire, got called up from England. It got the notorious Sellers, the, was he the chairman of Yorkshire, Brian Sellers, he might be good enough for England, but he weren't good enough for Yorkshire. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very classic Yorkshire remark, isn't it? That sort of morale-boosting chat before going out. <laughs> <laughs> might be time to pay tribute. That one was written by Richard Whitehead, who worked for Wisdom and used to work for The Times. You may know him, so he, he does some of them as well. I don't, I don't want to take all the credit. <laughs> no, please send our uh, warmest regards to Richard Whitehead. It's a masterpiece, actually, of an, of, 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 of an obituary. What are the criteria for for getting a wisdom obituary? 
Uh, I mean, many people would actually pay for one. I wonder if that idea has <laughs> ever been ever been considered in a sordid commercial way. But um, how how do you get in? <laughs> I I don't think it's been considered, but it might be now. <laughs> um, well, basically, you get in by playing cricket to a high standard, and if you play a reasonable amount of first class cricket, you get in. I think that'd be a bit boring if that was the only reason for getting you in. So famous fans get in, famous. Famous people who had lives outside cricket but had something to do with cricket would get in. Uh, one, of, one of the interesting ones this year is John Manners, who was a lieutenant commander in the Navy and didn't play very much county cricket. People thought he could have been a test player if he'd played a lot. He died aged 105. Aged over 100, he was still nipping up the road to buy the times and tomatoes and things and had just an astonishing life with a lot of cricket thrown in. Glorious. Aged 105 is when he died. Second World War. I love his 72 bottles of brandy. He, they hoiked off a ship they sunk. Yes, it was yes. absolutely... Except one to Winston Churchill, who <laughs> uh, was obviously very fond of brandy. Comes back from the war in 90... Scores, promptly scores 121 against Kent. Yes, one of two 105-year-olds um, whose death you record, um, and the other being um, one that was very significant for Winston itself. Yes, that's Ken Medlock. He's also 105. We suspect they're the oldest two people we've yet managed to put in the obituary section. He, as a youngish man, he was put on the board of the co-op which owned Winston at the time. This is about 1960, I think, and he was rather astonished as a cricket lover to find. One of the first agenda items was to liquidate John Wisden and company. And he said, you can't do that. It's very famous. And so, and so they said, well, you, you run it then. You organize it then. And he, he took it on. He was the driving force with a friend of his, Leary Constantine, for the Wisden Trophy. And that was a couple of years later. And he had a remarkably varied life even after Wisden was passed on to somebody else. And, he ran a radio station. He, he wrote a book aged about 98. And the, the book is remarkably full of presentations to famous people. <laughs> One of the things, just returning to returning to manners, he is, I, I think I'm right in saying, the fa- last cricketer to have played first-class cricket before World War II, uh, mm. who, yes. who's, who's now left uh, left us. And so that's that's the end of that wonderful generation, which many of whom went on, of course, to fight. And in many cases to die for their country in World War Two. Yes, that's right. He's the last pre-war county cricketer in England. It's a, it's a generation which is, well, just about disappeared now, isn't it? There, there won't be too many more people who did something remarkable in the war and then came back to play county cricket. So they're, they're just too old now. So, so you're moving on to the period of, I suppose, more professionalism and there'll be more, there'll be more boluses and less mannerses. Might make it a bit less interesting. Well, I think there's, there's some fascinating former professional players in in there as well, like um, like Alan Raymond, whose life you know is the subject of a novel to me, or potentially the subject of a novel. Yes, he was a county cricketer and part-time dance instructor. He wrote a book which is very chunky and very heavy, and when you actually look at the book, it takes it's slightly early years. It takes him up to about the age of twenty-one, and there's four hundred pages. <laughs> and apparently, his family and friends are. I'll bring you out volume two at some point. Look forward to that. Um, I don't mean this as criticism, but another general point. 226 names in the obituary section, 10 of them women. 
seven women cricketers and three other women. One's, one's a scorer, one's a pie maker and one's, one's a widow. And I just wonder if this reflects um, a legacy of neglect of, um, of women in cricket. And um, I wondered how you get notified of the deaths of um, significant women in cricket to sort of redress the balance a little bit. Uh, you're probably right. Sort of historically, I think they were the, the women were more or less ignored unless they were very famous. The Marjorie Pollard you're talking about, who was an exceedingly big figure in women's cricket, got about six lines when she died forty years ago, and this is a an attempt to to redress the balance of it. I, th- I think there are generally fewer, sort of historically speaking, women cricketers that we know about because there's not a first class system. There's Really, certainly 40 years ago, there's only three or four countries that played to any extent. Uh, we, we put the people in that we find out about. There are the, the two cricket websites, Cricket Info and Cricket Archive, have uh, lists of people whose deaths are notified. That's my sort of start point for all of them, and the men and the women. And we, we, we do our best, if you like. <laughs> no, that wasn't meant as a criticism. It's just a um, really an observation. I, I think it is a criticism, not of the current wisdom. It's just a, there is a criticism of the blindness of, of past generations, Richard. But I want to move on. I, I want so grateful. I mean, I was so fascinated. There's a famous story about the Pur of Pagaro, the, the leader of the Hurs tribe in, um, in southern pa- Pakistan now. And Muhammad, uh, Hanif Muhammad, in his autobiography, tells the story of the Pur being felled in the nets by a fast bowler and the fast bowler being uh, then rescued uh, being attacked by the hers tribesmen who accompanied the purr of pagaro wherever he went and here we uh, i discover in in wisdom obituaries and i'm so grateful the name of the bowler who's died actually muhammad monaf he's died at age, age 84 he's a stocky Seema, Wisdom describes him as, and he was the bowler who felled Per of Pagaro and, narrow, <laughs> and narrowly escaped being lynched. That's right. <laughs> uh, no, no pun intended. Yes. No pun intended. No, well, <laughs> yes. that's right. There, there were. Uh, I thought of you actually. There are two or three Pakistan Test cricketers in there, aren't there? And uh, there are. He was one. He was one, and, and Munaf never did much against England. I think he was injured for the 62 tour in which he might well have done well. They could have done with him in the 62 tour. They needed him, they did him then, yes. If they were <laughs> thinking, totals. and if they were thinking, as you say, of recalling Khalid Wazir, who toured in 1954 as a teenager and then never had another, never played another first-class match, they, <laughs> they must have been in desperate straits. Yeah, it seems to be a record that. He's the only, per- only test cricketer who didn't, Whose last first-class match game before he was nineteen? Last first, yes, that's the, that, that. That really, it almost makes you think. Last first-class match, he never played. Never, mm. never played another one after this test no. match. Mm. Sta- he stayed in England, basically. That's right. Yeah, didn't he? He, he, um, he played in the, I think, in the Lancashire League or in the Cheshire League. Staying with the Pakistanis, I mean, Waka Hassan, who Richard and I interviewed, I think, twice in his office in Karachi momentous figure in the history of Pakistan cricket because he was the last remaining figure, I think I'm right in saying, who played in the first test match against Pakistan, the, the inaugural test match in Delhi, a remarkably good player. Against became India. a very significant, significant businessman after after his retirement and he, and he is marked in, in, in wisdom. Uh, yes, that's right, last survivor. And 
because they didn't play very much in those days, there's a slight problem that you look and say, oh, he only played 21 test matches, which is now somebody that does that in a year and a half. But that's quite a significant career for someone in the 50s. And you have to try and reflect that. I also love the fact that you don't just uh, mention the great cricketers, but also, you know, Mohammed Bashir, the who was groundsman at the Gaddafi Stadium at Lahore for 50 years. He gets a nice, nice obituary. And a lovely quote from the journalist Shahid Hashmi, you know, all Pakistan pitches have his sweat and blood. How many, uh, uh, what a, what a good contribution he made, even though unsung. And it's so nice that Wisdom has acknowledged that. I think he deserves to be there. And it, and it, and it makes the thing a bit different. It makes, it's not just a catalogue of, he took five for 72 against Cambridge or something. It's, there are different people in there and, and unexpected people. And it, it makes it surely more interesting. I want Richard to talk about Nadkani, the, tremendous Indian off-spinner who, Richard, you've met him a few times and he, he has one particular record I think we need to talk about. Well, he, it's mentioned in Wisdom many times in several sections and, of course, in his obituary that bowled um, the greatest number of consecutive six-ball maiden overs in a test match, 21 of them against England in a match England were trying to save in 1964. But the one detail I can add is that 40 years on, he was still furious that his sequence was ended by a misfield at mid-off. <laughs> and England were able to get a single as a result. And he was still didn't furious. He get, didn't he get taken off at that point? Well, yeah, uh, yes. It was a bit expensive. Yeah, I think so, yes. <laughs> and and, um, and um, he, uh, 40 years on, he, he, he still he, he talks about it. He's very proud of his... Well, he was talking about his record all the time. And... Um, he feels he could. He feels he sure he could have. But for that misfield, he could have bowled another twenty or twenty-one maiden overs. I, I spoke to Barry Knight about him to find out exactly what sort of left-arm spinner he was, and I said, was he sort of firing it in like Underwood? I what what I imagined. He didn't exactly loop it up. He said, <laughs> <laughs> "No." They once um, he he was so. Another story I heard about him, uh, not at first hand. He was so precise as a bowler. But when he overpitched a couple of times, bowled some half volleys, they re they remeasured the pitch and discovered it discovered the pitch was short. It wasn't Nard Carney's fault. <laughs> he was a decent batsman as well. He was a better batsman than the, the the later spinners who came along. He was. He was uh, very handy down about wasn't he at about number seven, about number eight he he, yeah, he, he got a he got a test hundred. I think he was batting at number four at some point. Oh. He, he was one of the few that did well on their 1959 tour of England, which was a bit of a disaster otherwise. I remember watching that tour, and it was, uh, yes, it was pretty depressing for them, pretty non-stop. Uh, he, was, he was a bright spark in them. Another name that caught my eye personally was um, C.P.S. Chowan, uh, the Indian opening batsman who was... Apparently, it was Sunil Gavaskar's regular and, I think, favourite opening partner. Another addendum, he never made a century in test matches, but he did make one against the British Parliament's team, the Lords and Commons, <laughs> when he became, much later, when he was a BJP MP in 2004. I think you bowled, I seem to recall, you bowled at him for several overs, didn't you, Richard? I mean, your very accurate medium pace was... Well, uh, 
That's treated with some deference, I think. No, well, I thought it was being treated with deference at first. I thought I was doing very well to go for for five and over. And then I realised, depressingly, that he was just using my overs to have a bit of a rest. Um, And (laughs) when he needed to accelerate the scoring rate, he took about 10 or 15 off them without any effort at all. He was a very, yeah, he was a a test batsman. Uh, He was, and considerably a above, uh, in cl- considerably a class above most of the players around him, except two other ex-Indian test cricketers who also went into politics. They're in the same team were Kurti Azad, who was an all-rounder in the 70s, and Navjot Sidhu, another opening batsman and a very fierce one. Very glad to get him out rather early, as I remember. Uh-huh. You did, did yeah. you, Richard? Not me, not me. No, I oh. <laughs> No, my, if, if I have to say it, my most illustrious victim, in a, also in a parliamentary game, was Collis King. Well, that's West all right. Indies. Yeah. Mm. Caught on the boundary, perhaps? No, actually, Yorked. <laughs> he played over my oh. Yorker. Mm. <laughs> oh, that's very impressive. Well, he, he was deceived by its slowness. <laughs> He'd completed the stroke uh, as it sort of <laughs> drifted in over his boots and then hit the stars. Richard's being too modest. I've faced a few Yorkers from him. Um Graham Cowdery, I want, he's such a wonderful person, and again, a very moving uh, obituary there. Uh, you know, here was a player who really could have, he was in the shadow of his father a bit. I mean, he was a great batsman for Kemp, wasn't he? He used to come in and slaughter the bowling in the uh, again and again. Isn't that right, Stephen? That's right, and a, a very good fielder too. Uh, I, I think he thought he might have played for England if his surname was Smith and... That the, that the cowdery weighed him down a bit. Yes, I think that's true. I think I think he was a more exciting player than his older brother, who did play for England and captained England. Yes, Chris Cowdery was a. Yeah, that's probably a similar tale. I'm not sure he would have played for England if his if his name had been Smith. So, um, strange thing, isn't it? The family, the way that family can weigh you down in that way sometimes. I'm sad to read in wisdom that he had a tough time after. You know, because he, he, he was such an exuberant, life, life-enhancing presence. You know, that one stage later on in life, he was, to quote wisdom, leading a hand-to-mouth existence, sofa surfing and sometimes sleeping in his car. What, what, that, that yes, was... that, that, and, and nobody, well, I don't say nobody knew, but nobody outside close friends and family, I imagine, knew. Uh, he was still this jovial character. He turned up last year or the year before as a pitch inspector for the ECB and... And working as a lock, enjoying lockdown as an Amazon delivery driver. Mm. So yes, he, he got, he kept on with, just he, amazing, he back, kept, carried on. I remember I had a wonderful, great lunch with him about, must have been 25 years ago at the Howard Hotel, which went on sometime into the afternoon, I think. <laughs> and uh, he was then working for a spread betting firm, I have seemed to feel. Mm, yes. 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 I, I don't know whether his problems might have been to do with betting. I don't know. I, I'm not. But I think we can, there's so much to celebrate, celebrate about his life. Yeah. He was a man who gave so much to cricket and to life, you know. And yeah, uh, and, and the, the the players that you speak to all thought he was fabulous. They're all gutted at his death, obviously, but they're all saying the same thing. How, what a fun person he was and a nice person to be around. Perhaps too generous in many ways he might have been. Yeah, yeah. maybe, yeah. Best man to Rory Bremner. Intrigued by that, <laughs> yes. Rory Bremner is Rory Bremner is a, is a very good cricketer himself. Played played against him. And Van Morrison's biggest fan. Mm, yes, whatever it was, 250. 
um, visits to Van Morrison, and Van Morrison asked after him, didn't he? In the, in the, yeah. uh, Sometimes he'd stop the concert and say, "Is Graham here?" Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> is that right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's exactly that's that's a testimony. You know, Graham Count Gaudry was somebody who, who made a who made a party go. Which may certainly made had you on your edge when you were watching cricket, as I can testify was fabulous company over lunch. Uh, we, I mean, I'm very glad too that Wisden has given a very full and detailed um, obituary to Peter Walker, who we discussed when we had Andrew Hignell on uh, a few weeks ago. Richard it did um, a, a very very rich life, something that would make a great you know biopic um, on. Um, uh, a great biopic television series, running away to sea, practising his catching with potatoes in the cargo hold. Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. Inspired training for cricket, you uh, know, in, in the circumstances. Um, By the end of it, according to Wisdom, they'd all gone overboard. <laughs> <laughs> there must have been a distinct shortage of potatoes in the, in the, on the aboard ship at the latter stages of the voyage. Mm. Coming back to Glamorgan, just asking for a trial. We discussed that with um, with Andrew Hignall. Very uh, important detail, which I'd not known. As a journalist, he'd covered the Aberfan disaster, but was so moved, he was unable to report it, and he joined mm. the, the rescue effort instead. That's, a, That's so honourable. Yeah. And then, uh, on the lighter side, I never knew this before, I'd written and wrote a... Wrote a novel as uh, under the byline of Sari McGann, Breakaway, and it's uh, what a in my old newspaper would have called a raunchy novel by the sound of it. Breakaway, a female fantasy week, <laughs> and um, I even you know I looked up what it was about. I looked up the blurb for it. Um, Ruth Freeman has virtually everything she could wish for in life. Everything that is except passion. Yes. Um, but then, uh, you know, she's she's trapped in her dull life. Was it to be more of the same, a marriage of convenience for both she and husband Philip? Her spirit rebels against the thought, and when out of the blue, an opportunity presents itself to become her own woman again, albeit, albeit for a brief week. Yeah, very, um, that's, it makes me want to read it. <laughs> then, of course, we have, I mean, we have uh, one of the, most underrated batsman of modern of the post-war period, I think, which is J.H. John Edrich's uh, long, detailed, thorough, very serious obituary of John Edrich. And it made you realise that we never quite got to grips of what a formidable batsman he was, Stephen. Yeah, that's right. He was especially good against Australia. I think he's up there with more centuries for England in, in the top few against Australia. Uh, you always felt it was pretty dependable when you had Edrich and Boycott opening. Or sometimes Edrich got pushed down to number three, but he was a, a reassuring presence. Yes, I hadn't, I'd forgotten that. When Luckhurst played in Australia in 1771, Edrich was number three. Yes, that's right. That's and in yeah. Australia in 65-6, he was number three because Bob Barber was opening. And oh, Gosh, yes. But he had two good tours there and he was 160... <laughs> Probably the, he got 164 at the Oval in 1968, which everybody forgets about because that was the oh, innings yeah. in which D'Oliveira got 158. Indeed, D'Oliveira and him had a long partnership, didn't they? they yeah. Did. But D'Oliveira is the one you remember. And 
Edrich did he pretty well. He came off against the big sides, didn't he, Edrich? Mm. He had a great record against the West Indies, which was then the mm-hmm. greatest team in the world, and a great record against Australia. He had quite a struggle early on. I hadn't realised that, to, to get to get going in the England team. Uh, yes, he. I think he took a while to establish himself. There, there's a story in there, isn't there, about when, when he joined Surrey and somebody looked at him batting and in the nets and said, hey, who signed this bloke? He said, he's, he's, he's hopeless. And they said, well, I'll tell you what, he's batted for an hour and he hasn't missed one yet. Yes. And yeah. he was like that. He wasn't spectacular, really. Although I think in his early days, he hit a lot of sixes. He's, by a long way, got the most runs in boundaries in the test innings, which is quite surprising. I think there's a table in there. There is. his uh, 311, wasn't it, against New Zealand? But by 30 or so, more than anybody else. You wouldn't, mm. you wouldn't instantly pick him to do that, but he was a... He could thump the ball when required. I love the um, quote by the Guardian, the Guardian writer Dennis Robertson, and he scored. I think I think it was his first Test century against uh, Australia in '64 at Lords. Robertson described it as an innings of an assertion of stern character, <laughs> rather than an exercise of effortless resource. They did write well in those days. They under. Stated things, didn't they? The art of understatement has rather been lost, I feel, in modern cricket. Right, most modern cricket writers, yourself excluded. I detect a note of snobbery in some of those uh, remarks about the earlier remarks about um, John Edridge. I just wondered whether that influenced his career. To um, you know, he was criticised for not being a sort of effortless amateur, you know, and not being elegant. And I think. I don't know what you think, Stephen. Do, do you think that might have encouraged him to play even more so his own way? You know, I'm going to, I'm going to, right, I'll show these people. I'm going to score a lot of runs, not in the effortless amateur way, in the way I choose to play. Uh, yeah, there's the, probably something in that. He started still in the amateur era, didn't he, in the 50s, when you were uh, supposed to be captained by an amateur and supposed to play like that. And not everybody can. I mean, I, I, I admire people like Edrich and Boycott and... Wessels, not not great stylists, but people who make the most of every ounce of ability they've got. I do think that um, the heroism of people like Ed, I mean, Edwards, you've dug out, Wisdom has dug out this quote. He scored in the fourth test in Australia against Lillian Thompson that when the batting was like, was, was, you required just a face, real, real guts. And after, he's got a, a heroic 50. And afterwards, my he got hit so much. My ribs hurt when I talk, they hurt when I laugh, and they hurt when I move. But what really hurts is that we've lost, <laughs> and that that's eloquence. And of course, I do remember he was recalled, wasn't he, with DB Close about ten years later in his mid forties to face again, you know, ninety-five mile an hour West Indian attack. I mean, this is a man of enormous, enormous courage. Yes, that's a very famous passage of play, isn't it, with the, the West Indians hurling bounces at the two of them. I think he... Without helmets close. in those yeah, days. Yeah, no, no helmets, no... Well, a thigh pad, I suppose, that's about it. But I, I think it was one of them started laughing uncontrollably as they when they came off. I think it was probably close and said, 90 minutes of that, said, I'm two not out or something like that. <laughs> and he needed been these, killed. These were times. heroes, these, these men. This yeah. was the age of... And I don't think we appreciated... Edrich and Close enough when they were alive. Reading that was the other thing which this made me feel. Yes, that's right. I, I get a feeling a lot of 
well, I really wish I'd spoken to this chap before he passed away. You know, the, the, just imagine what he could tell you. And, and you put it off and put it off and you don't, you often don't speak to them until it's too late. And they were a very famous family, weren't they, the Edriches? As I see that again, wisdom, uh, that Peter, Peter George Edrich, uh, who's died of COVID, like so many people in these obituaries, age 95, was a member of the same family which produced, of course, Bill Edrich, uh, Compton's great mucker and uh, the, man, <laughs> the man of 1947, and, uh, and John Edrich. He died too. Yes, that's right. They, they used to run a, an Edrich 11 up in Norfolk, where they all came from. Edrich 11 against locals and the Lord's Taverners or something. Uh, Bill Edrich had two other brothers or three? Uh, three other brothers who played county cricket. Gosh. And John Edrich was their cousin. A bit like the so, Berkey family, family in Pakistan. Uh, <laughs> no, let's not know. start with them. Look, they're even, no, let's not start them. It is a bit like them, but there are so many more Berkeys, even, <laughs> even than Edrich's. Yes. Ah. Yeah. Stephen, year after year, um, Wisdom's obituaries pick out a, um, in a very few words, a brief but fascinating life. And um, once again, we've found some examples one of these understated brief novels is um, the one for John Bruce, uh, the chap who played, I'm fascinated by this number for itself, played 999 matches for Hornsey. <laughs> yes, that's right. He, um, you, you find about these things also, I told you about the websites, we also get obviously people writing to say, did you know that this chap had died? And he, and you look into it and he, he compiled his own Hornsey Almanac, which I assume, without seeing it, looks like a bit like Wisdom, and it was 1,400, 1,600 pages, with all Hornsey's matches in and all their records. So we're pretty sure that 999 is the accurate figure. Oh, it would be. And I'm, in, I'm fascinated by the things on which he was also, among other things, an authority. <laughs> <laughs> the London Underground's in there, isn't it? <laughs> it certainly is, yes. I remember cutting it down from the original list of about 20 things he was a moral authority on. <laughs> well, yeah, the other one is Woolacombe Tied Tables. He knew a lot about that. And the assassination of President Kennedy. Not always a good sign, I should say, that yeah. one. The history and, of uh, wisdom. And above all, though, he was an authority on the history of wisdom. Uh, yeah, well, that, that probably qualifies him without doing anything else. Dare I mention that when I was on Mastermind, Magnus Magnuson put us put all us contenders at ease by reading out a list of special subjects which had been rejected for Mastermind as a contender, and the leading one was road routes to and from Letchworth, Hertfordshire. <laughs> oh, you put me to say, damn! <laughs> if only I'd know. I mean, I wonder if. Um, the history of Hornsey Cricket Club would have been accepted as a suitable subject for interrogation by Magnus Magnuson. Well, they always, not... like, they always like to avoid subjects in which um, the contender had written the only source book, of which I suspect that, that was, certainly the major one. <laughs> yes. There are also very uh, moving stories of cricketers uh, killing themselves in disappointment at non-selection. Yes, that's a, it's a very sad one, and you never know quite how to deal with them, really. But we, we, we just record them as best we can, and we try and find out. Sometimes you can't. I think there was a someone who was murdered by his son over a dispute over money or something, and I haven't been able to find out any more 
details about that. And yes, that would be the ex Ranji Trophy. Uh, yes. Player died after an argument over money with his son, who was later charged with murder. They're very bleak, isn't it? Well, yes. So we just record them. You're not you're not doing anything other than just recording the fact that sadly this has happened. I think there's one in there of someone who was depressed that he couldn't get an IPL contract. Yes, there there is. Mm. It's important you do record these because mm. there is a very tough side of cricket. That, you know, there is a loneliness about cricket, which I think is truer of cricket than any other sport, to, uh, which is why you do get such people de- depressed and suicidal when their careers end, people who've given so much joy. Harold Gimblet of Somerset is one example. He gave such an entertainer who died sadly. And so he, I think it is important that wisdom doesn't for, does honour the people who... It just they find this environment which can be so exhilarating, but it also can be so lonely. Yeah, it's it's lonely, and you sometimes fail, and then suddenly it's all taken away from you, and you have to go and work in a bank or something. And especially in India, the the difference that an IPL contract would have made to this chap, like six hundred times his normal wage or something, is is it's unimaginable, really. It's it's not just it's not just the money as you say it's but it's also the you know it'd be the status in in society wouldn't it be that that you would lose one particularly sad um, obituary in in this sort of category was um, the uh, the suicide of the actor who had played M S Doney in a biopic about M S Doney and I feel there's a a movie in his story uh, as well uh, yes he was said to be suffering from depression. I suppose acting is possibly a bit like cricket, is it? Uh, you, you're suddenly out of the limelight. He was coach for ages. They said he wasn't a natural cricketer, but he was coach for ages. I think he injured his shoulder trying to replicate Dhoni's famous helicopter shot. <laughs> That's method acting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If ever there was one, you know, training is a professional... Training to imitate one of the most famous professional cricketers... Uh, modern age, of the modern age for 10 months. Mm. I mean, that is <laughs> method acting. I think, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis would have, would be proud of that. Um, yes, that's right. There's a happier acting story, isn't there, Erfan Khan? Uh, yes, he was the he was in Slumdog Millionaire, wasn't he? Talented all-rounder, selected for a youth tournament, couldn't find 600 rupees to get to the match, <laughs> goes into acting instead. <laughs> that's right. He said there was... There was a bit more scope in acting, and you could do it for as long as you liked. <laughs> he was uh, fortuitous events changed changed lives, changed him from being a cricketer into a might not have succeeded into being a very successful actor. Of course, there is this which we've often explored: this quite intense relationship between cricketers and acting. Waka Hassan, who we whose 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 obituary is in this year's wisdom, his uh, he had a brother who was. Iqbal Shahzad, a very famous director who married the Indian actress Rahana. And of course, Fazal Mahmood, who was was basically a walking, a movie star who happened to be playing cricket, wasn't he, Richard? Well, he nearly, very nearly became a movie star, as we um, discussed with our friend um, Najam Latif a few weeks ago. Um, uh, he, had, he had movie star looks. And um, of course, you know, many... Um, um, our friend 
Mohsen Khan uh, played 45 tests in Pakistan and made, I think, 53 movie appearances after after his cricket career. So there's quite a transition between, um, particularly in India and Pakistan, between, um, you know, between cricket and acting. The other thing which I love about the obituary section are the people who are sort of peripheral to cricket but do have genuine cricket connections. Nobby Styles. We love Nobby Styles so much. Tell us about Nobby Styles, the cricketer, Stephen. Uh, I think he was quite a good cricketer, but uh, couldn't get on with the contact lenses or something. So he concentrated on football, at which he was rather better. But it, later on, when he was a World Cup winner, he would just get on the tram or the train and go and sit in the in the stands at Old Trafford on his own and just watch. And uh, there's a story in there. I think he. He said he bored Laker and Lock Silly about the 56 Ashes test, which he'd watched. I love that. That was a more innocent era, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine David Beckham nipping down to, to watch the Lancashire Lightning. Nicholas Parsons. So tell us about him and cricket. Uh, well, yeah, very, very uh, long-established broadcaster, obviously. I think he was 96 when he died and only just stopped doing just a minute. Uh, he apparently his party piece was to recite the pre-war Surrey team, and he was he was also a, a prominent Lords Taverner who played a lot for them. So they occasionally played at Lords. I think he was the chairman or president or possibly both of the Lords Taverners. And Julian Breen. Ah yes. <laughs> what I liked about him was that he used to wear batting gloves while fielding to to protect his uh, his fingers for the guitar. I bet. Tim Brooke Taylor is another uh, case in point. Uh, yes, that's right. He's another Lord's Taverner. He's quite a prominent cricket family. I think it was his uncle that played for and I think Captain Derbyshire. And again, he was quite uh, interested in cricket, but uh, played a fair bit. And in the goodies, there's quite a lot of cricket references. There's even one episode that MCC triumph over the <laughs> sort like rollerball or something. And the, the other theme which comes out of your obituaries this year are the victims of of covid uh richard has counted 15 he tells me and two of them especially poignant mr and mrs marchant who died next to each other on the same day yes that's right he was a prominent member of the cricket society a big um, thing for cricket fans and it's just incredibly Sad, isn't it? You just have to think of the family with, with both of them going in adjacent beds in the hospital. It's unthinkable. We we don't normally put in the cause of death unless it's somebody young and unexpected. So if somebody dies age seventy, normally we don't we don't go into why they what they died of. But this year we thought we should, if COVID was mentioned, just just flag it up because. A uh, hundred years ago, they didn't seem to bother when there was the Spanish flu. Um, so we thought, as a historical record, we should, where we knew it, we should mention it. And there is this debate about whether people die of coronavirus or with it. So it's a bit, it, it, it's awkward to say he died of COVID nineteen because there were other, probably other factors. Robin Jackman is down as in some places is dying of it but he had all sorts of other health problems i don't know that you would say 
he absolutely died of it, but he certainly had it when he died. And of course, it's uh, you also note, I'm very glad, I mean, I, it's very important that you did so. Najib Taraki, the Afghan international, killed crossing the road in Jalalabad. I'm mm. not, not surprised that people get killed crossing the road in Jalalabad, <laughs> but just 29 years old. Yes, yeah, there, there's all sorts of ways. The I think the first Bangladesh test cricketer to die a few years ago was knocked off his scooter or something. And it's just one of those things, isn't it? It's just an unbelievable thing. Well, it tells you, tells you a lot about the fragility of cricketers' lives in some countries. This is not an obituary, but I noticed an, an unusual occurrence. 14-year-old boy struck by lightning playing beach cricket near Mumbai. Yeah, you know it's a, what what might have happened to him um, if he'd been allowed a full life in cricket. Um, another one that caught my eye because it links up to the environmental problems which are threatening cricket. The very first name in the um, obituaries this year: um, two Indian women cricketers, Kazia Farid Ahmed and Ferozia Khan, killed by heavy rain, causing landslides and flooding. Mm. It's a coincidence. That's the first one, but it's a strange way to start, isn't it? It's uh, as you say. It, it just it's the great panoply of things, isn't there? Wisdom, as we were saying at the start, has covered COVID with great intelligence and sensitivity. I think. Yes, we 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 did that. As I explained with the obituaries, we've had we've got a sort of timeline of everything that happened. Uh, this all started when we didn't think there was going to be any cricket at all, or we thought there was a possibility there might not be, and we had to record what was what was happening. So, very um, as we said earlier, it's another very powerful theme in wisdom this year is the history of racism and discrimination. Delighted, incidentally, that um, Michael Holdings' impassioned um, remarks to Sky Sport were, were reproduced. Um, I think it'd be a wonderful idea if Michael Holding could go to the House of Lords with mm. Ian Botham. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I was struck by three obituaries that picked up the theme of racism in one way and another. There were two non-white South Africans, Noel Brashi and um, Ismail Ibrahim, who, um, as, he, as the obituary says, lost their careers uh, because of um, uh, discrimination and racism. But also there's a very powerful... A theme in the great tribute to Everton Weeks, wasn't there? Yes, the, the South Africans, there's a lot of people who played what are now considered first-class matches in the 50s and 60s, alongside players like Basil Oliveira in for non-white teams. It's just a, a sort of stain on society, isn't it? It's uh, just something that happened at the time, and we have to uh, we have to register the fact that they... All those people are now 70 and 80 and are slowly disappearing. Interesting, Stephen, you said matches now considered first class. Um, Peter and I are camp- they're not yet recognised as first class, say, in Cricket Archive, or I think in, even in Derisate and Wisdom. And Peter and I have launched a campaign about this uh, and also to reclassify the, not, a, not demote as test matches, but reclassify the test matches played against South Africa up until 1970. No, they were unofficial, officially, weren't they? I think they are in Cricket Archive, the matches we're talking about, the, um, the non-white ones. There was not, 
Basil Dor- well, we look, I looked this up quite recently. Basil Dolavira's first-class career begins, according to Cricket Archive, in 1961, oh, really? uh, when he, uh, in his, you know, when he played for the that Commonwealth eleven in yeah. um, in uh, what was then Northern Rhodesia was his first first-class match. And he was then in his in his thirties. All the great matches he played in the in the fifties, including the international ones he played in uh, against East African teams, they're still. Minor matches still not in cricket oh, archive. Right. Yeah, oh, uh, certainly some were added. I don't know. I can't remember which ones. Perhaps it was organised tournaments. They had the Howard Bowl and things. They added a few in the early seventies. Um, I've, I've noticed. Noel Brachy will be a close relative of a wonderful man, one of the most wonderful people I've ever had to deal with. A glorious person, Frank Brachy who was uh, the kind of advisor to Basil, really close friend of Basil D'Oliveira, who hugely key, influential in cricket circles in what was then so-called coloured South Africa in the 1950s and 60s. He was the one who uh, really urged uh, Basil to go to England, helped him draft the letter to John Arlott, which set, you know, set everything in motion. And Frankie Brachy um, was, a, was a barman, uh, in one of the posh hotel white hotels in uh, Cape Town, and it, it's where Basil went when he got the offer to play in Middleton. He went to straight down to the hotel and got himself in through the back back doors lift and went and saw Frankie Brackey, and Frankie Brackey then appeared on uh, on that lovely program. You know, this is your life. They flew him in from South Africa. And I interviewed him and he was so helpful to me and he was the most lovely human being. Uh, and I'm sure that Noel Brahe will be a close connection of his and it's a very famous cricketing family in Cape Town. Stephen, apart from the rich stories and the obituaries, there's a fascinating story, I think, behind the very first entry in the errata this year, for which you're, also, you're always you're responsible for the errata, correcting the errata in wisdom. And... The first one this year is a fascinating one about Wisdom 1923, 98 years ago, um, uh, which um, poor old downgrades poor old C.V. Leaf. Tell us about him and how you found <laughs> out about him. It's C.V. Leaf of Forest School, appropriately enough, and um, it's the bad news for his family that his highest score that year was not 277, which Wisdom said, but 27, which is not quite as good. Uh, I think I was responsible for that one because one of the other features this year is a, a retrospective look at the school's cricket of the year. So I was going through all the stats to find out who the leading players were and noticed that C.V. Leaf, despite his high score of 277, had an average of about 15, so it didn't <laughs> make sense. So we have corrected it 98 years on. Uh, there's one other correction I would <laughs> like to put to you, Richard and I would, oh. on behalf of our great friend Ify Bakari who uh, played for Cambridge in the late 50s and then went on and played in the Kaidi Azam Trophy. And I think it was 61 or 62. Ify Bakari uh, came second in the batting averages and he took took us to lunch at the Punjab Club in Lahore to urge... So he'd been writing a series of letters to Wisdom complaining that he should have been top. Kardar, A.H. Kardar was top. And he was retired hurt in an innings and Wisdom counted that innings as out. Hmm. And he maintained that he was not out. And had he been given not out, he would have 
the top of the batting averages. And this was a grievance which he'd nursed for half a century, so much so that when he heard that a couple of English cricket writers were in Lahore, he, we were summoned to be told about this. To be grilled. Is it too late to get Ify, the great injustice to our friend Ify Bukhari rectified? Next oh, well, year? I'll, I'll pass it on. Our, our statistical editor is Harriet Monkhouse, who's another force of nature, and she she collates all the errata with great excitement. So I can... Well, I will write, with your permission, I will write a letter to um, your statistics editor, uh, and providing the details and the necessary background. <laughs> and perhaps after 50, 60 years, we can rectify one of the yeah, foulest yeah, calumnies of our <laughs> time, which is that if Bakari was not top of the batting averages in Accidental cal- calumny, but still a, a dread, but still a dreadful, a dreadful slight, and all done, I think, out of um, favouritism to A. H. Cardar to to slip, put him up there where he didn't, where he didn't belong to be, didn't, didn't belong. Stephen, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. We could talk about many more obituaries because there's so many fascinating stories in the obituaries, but we've. Also, um, as we mentioned, there's a um, so many very deeply serious subjects outside cricket that have been brilliantly covered um, in Wisdom this year that we'd like to um, talk with you about again. So we're very hopeful that you'll join us next week and that we'll be able to have another session on this very rich edition, Wisdom 2021. Uh, volume two. Yes, I'd, I'd love to. I should be here. Thank you very Thank much. You. It's been, it's a lovely day. You're, the, you know, the real, the juices are starting to flow. Cricket is underway. Spring has started. There's something so joyful and wonderful about the arrival of wisdom. Thank you so much for joining us this week, uh, Stephen, and see you next week. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. Meanwhile, it's goodbye for me, Richard Heller, on an ever more lustrous a sunny day in London South East. And it's goodbye from me, Peter Roborn in Wiltshire. <laughs>